Hello there and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love, such as... Kara, what does illumination mean? I'm your host, Andrew Bonapane, and today we are joined by Damon Owens of Joyful Ever After. Damon, thank you for joining us. Oh, so good to be with you. Great topic and excited to chat with you. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited too. We're talking about natural family planning as NFP week is coming up at the end of July from July 25th to 31st. And we have resources up in a link in the episode notes to NFP and NFP week. This year, the theme is to have, to hold, and to honor. So if you want to find resources or links to classes in your area, you can find that at the link in the episode notes. So Damon, before your current work with Joyful Ever After, you taught with your wife, uh, natural family planning for over 20 years. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And for, I started with personal use. We immediately went into some training at the Archdiocese of Newark. We're up in New Jersey there. And that just started what ended up being a few decades of teaching, promoting, speaking around the world, literally, and really just recognizing this the great gift of natural family planning that gets lost in the sauce. <laughs> I think that's been that's been the experience of a lot of young couples that I know who are aware of natural family planning, but yeah, like you said, it kind of got lost amid a lot of the pressures of being a newly married couple. So during your NFP teaching days, what were some of the most common concerns people would bring up? Yes, I mean, there has been a, quite a shift in the last couple of decades, as it were. I sound like an old man, <laughs> but you know, back in the day, and when we learned natural family planning in 1992, about uh, six months before Mel and I were married in 93 and the couples that taught us were just on fire they were the marriage encounter you know folks from the 80s and the 70s so they were living you know this real intimacy a real vibrant catholic spiritual couple spirituality and natural family planning was just in very many ways this natural part of that vibrancy and what set them apart so we learned it under that sort of condition that you know you're learning natural family planning very few people use it but the ones who use it you know uh, have strong marriages and vibrant sexuality and family life and faithful so there was a there was a whole vibrancy with that and that carried over into our teaching so we learned it and really used it our entire marriage and it started for our story very much was very, I used the word utilitarian, very use, use centered, like it will help us to achieve. It will help us to postpone, you know, and, and yeah. you got to sh- you got to show it, you got to prove it. And as excited as we were, you know, we, we still had a lot of junk in our own hearts to, to work through for our, our own marriage and our own sexual intimacy and the, our family realizing that. And I think some of that also affected the teaching. And we saw at that age in teaching it, even with our excitement, that many couples had the, the primary challenge of just acknowledging that living in order, in the order of your fertility is even possible and that it's worth it and that it's worth the, the effort. Because you can learn, honestly, I've told you, you can learn the, the method, natural family planning, any of the methods, not any of them, but there are some that you can learn literally in an hour if your heart is open and you're willing to learn. I could teach you how to chart starting tonight. That's not the hard part. The hard part of natural family planning is getting over the mindset, getting over the what natural family planning demands in terms of real trust in how your, your body, particularly woman's body, is created and how you can monitor, acknowledge, chart, and trust, back to that word, trust, that you can build your family uh, without the modern demand for control. So that's really the, the, the heart shift here. And I think that hasn't changed over the decades. But what has changed, I think, is I think there's a bit of a softening culturally to natural methods. We've been predicting it for a while, but I think now there really is, instead of a contrary to contraception, there really is an openness to natural family planning, almost like the uh, the new impossible plant burgers. <laughs> yeah, sort of getting helpful bounce from the organic, non-GMO yeah. kind of food trends. That's, yeah. that's kind of a nice side effect. Well, yeah, I think what happened too is that what the bottom fell out of sort of the, the contraceptive wars, really the 90s, maybe the 2000s. There's still, there's still conflict. There's still disagreement. But there was flat out wars on contraception coming out of 1968, Humanae Vitae, all the way up you know, through the 90s when we learned it. So I think that adversarial spirit is lessened, you know, with some of these things. And it allows people to think more rationally or more consistently about natural things. So that's cool. 
because we had, again, we talked about this natural thing back in the 90s and it just never really stuck with couples. It never moved the needle with getting people to look at natural family planning. I think it wasn't because it wasn't rational. People were willing to live with the dissonance. They were willing to live with the contradiction of taking a, a steroid hormone classified as a as a carcinogen by the World Health Organization, even while they're getting organic broccoli. So I, they were willing to do that. I think there's there's less of that dissonance now where people are willing to look at it and we've got enough decades of really successful testimony. So it is a new day. We were stressing the natural before it was cool. Yeah, that's right. Have you seen any changes in couples who maybe starting out didn't fully buy into NFP? I do. You mean in terms of people who learned it and then trying to incorporate it in their marriages? Yeah. Absolutely. That's our testimony. Melanie and I, when we first learned it, we, we were excited about it. And I'm, I told you, I'm a recovering engineer. So I've always loved like the charts, you know, and even before it was cool, I was putting that into early versions of Microsoft Excel, trying to look for standard deviations and, and predictive, <laughs> you know, your mileage may vary. I think there's a, we had to overcome just what I mentioned before, this, this sense of control that we thought was necessary for building our families that, you know, even as I, I would say it's irrational, there was still this fear that if we didn't control it, that we we're going to have as many children biologically possibly can that, you know, we're just opening ourselves up to this, this, this flood. And it's just, it's irrational, but that's how we've been trained in the culture that contraception is the answer. You have to act against conception. Otherwise it will overwhelm you. And getting it out of your head is one thing. Getting out of your heart is another thing. So they think the challenge of a user of natural family planning, a couple, is easing into that trust, trust in the Lord, trust in the, of the bodies as creation, and the order, the order that we don't control our fertility with NFP. We observe and we order our behavior, our actions. We focus our desire, our sexual desire, our love, our marital vows, our openness to life. All these things, we order that to what God has already baked in to the body and the person. And that, that's a big head and heart shift. And I think that's, again, the most difficult part of natural family planning for couples is overcoming that sense of control yeah. and really trusting that, that there is a great good in God's plan. That control mindset is sort of addressed by Pope Francis when he talks about human ecology in Laudato Si, which is not at all a natural family planning document. But what he's, I think what he's trying to do in talking about the environment, he's trying to connect it to a larger whole about how we approach the world and approach things outside of our own will. We have this control mindset that we can treat our bodies however we want and we can get the exact result that we want. And it sort of mimics how we can approach the natural world and try to exact the outcomes that we that we want from natural resources without looking at the consequences. This mm, is, it sounds I like love that kind that. of same no, no, control I love that. mindset. No, I think you're right, Andrew. I think I think and Pope Francis is getting at why would not the ecology, in fact, one of the, the terms that's still around is this body ecology, human ecology, and it's not meant to be a, a flip on words as much as a reminder of the consistency throughout all of creation and the sense of being stewards. I call it the munis, the church called the munis, the high honor task, role, mission, vocation of being a steward and exercising dominion, Genesis 1, mm -hmm. and not domination. And those, those, you know, those are, are polar opposites. And domination really is about bending creation to our own will. And dominion is really about a rightful order, a rightful ruling using the gifts that God's created us. And the ability to rationally know the times of fertility and infertility, and then to have the will, the virtue, the habits, to ordering our good sexual intimacy toward that plan, you couldn't be more human. And that humanity, you know, an image and likeness of God means it's, a, it's an experience of, of a share in God's divinity. So there is definitely a connection between the broader created world and man and woman who are the crown of creation. Yeah. And all this is in the interest of making us more human. <laughs> That's um, right. <laughs> okay. So couples who switched from contraception to NFP, was there anything like particular about their experience that you found interesting? I do. I mean, to this day, these testimonies just 
they rock my heart because that's that's going through the whole journey. It's one thing to accept the you know contraceptive mentality, which most all of us do. It's in the air, it's in the water, it's the interpretive key of our culture that you know we have to act in order to get the results we want. So there's a there's an underlying mentality that can't be underestimated. But for those who actually practice some form of contraception, it, there really is a deeper habitual shift in the way we act that's demanded. And the stories you hear from these couples who for reasons they could not understand, had difficulty, had growing distance, had you know lack and diminishing intimacy in their marriage, and they couldn't understand why, and nothing seemed to point to that pill or to the condom or to the IUD or to that withdrawal or whatever whatever the other practices were. And yet, however they came into natural family planning, whatever method they particularly choose of an observational method, just the reordering of the habits in the heart and the struggle that comes with it. We can't be romantic about how hard it is to let go of this kind of control and the what it does to you, what it does to your marriage, what it does to your view of sex, male, female, and the verb, you know, sexual union. It changes everything. It really is foundational. And the simple practice uh, of natural family planning really is, and it's a practicum of the theology of the body. It's a way we can practice, you know, this deeper meaning of, of our role. So uh, the testimony of these couples, there's been books written about it. I have, I have interviewed people in the past about it. And I think that remains the greatest witness when you, when you meet a, a wounded healer, you know, somebody who's been through it, who can say, been yeah. there, done that, got the scar. You, yeah, I used to say that too. And this is what I meant. This is what I, you know, I know what you're saying because I was there and, and with all the authenticity and there's, there's this great credibility. Actually, to be honest, Andrew, the biggest challenges that I've seen uh, have been to folks who have not contracepted and they just don't think they have much of a story to tell. That's surprising. It's true. It's true. It's like with Precana and chastity or with, you know, pornography or, you know, these great evils in the, in the, in the culture. If you haven't per- directly participated in it, you almost feel inauthentic because you don't have a story that I went to hell, got a t-shirt, came back and then burned the t-shirt. You know, <laughs> it's always contradicted when you, when you get into people's individual stories, that there's always something that required great demand, great challenge, and then a great reward and consolation from the Lord. And I think it's just, a, there's a deeper sense with those who've previously contracepted that speaks more eloquently to what it takes to overcome that. Yeah, there's one more question I have, which has to do with couples who had significant medical risks if they were to become pregnant. I wonder, did they have any like special concerns about practicing natural family planning? Does that change their approach to it? You know, it, it could, there are minor things like in the, in the actual use, depending on the method that they may be more attentive to. There's always options and choices within different methods of delineating the fertile time and the infertile time and sort of the gray areas uh, when peak day is. So there are, depending on the method, there are some, you know, some specific things that might be employed given risks that are involved, you know, to health. But for the most part, I think it's more of a deepening of the same fear that every couple has, Mm -hmm. that if I don't actively control something, it's going to hurt me. And there is a deeper risk for those who have acute and diagnosed medical issues related to pregnancy, et cetera. Every method that I've taught, every method that I know, observational method accounts for that. Uh, acknowledges that and has, you know, depending on the degree of the severity, additional options, additional resources that are available to help to navigate that. But let's let's be clear too when people say that we're talking about the ability to know the only time during a woman's cycle where intercourse can achieve pregnancy. Natural family planning is observational. Morality comes in when we choose and we act. Only persons can act moral acts, and it has to be, you know, an act or an inaction. So the moral questions really come into what do we do with that knowledge? I remember when I did an extended series, like 12 episodes for EWTN years ago, and it's still available. And I really wanted to make that probably one of the primary messages that the first part of natural planning is what I call fertility intelligence. It really is an interlegis, to read within, you know, what's going on in my particular body, not woman in general, not man in general, not couple in general, but what's happening in my body at any particular time in regards to our ability to create new life. It's not a guarantee that you can, but there's only a certain window, literally a uh, five-day window where, where intercourse can achieve pregnancy. That When that egg is, is not there and not viable, pregnancy cannot occur. And it takes the woman's body days, if not weeks, to prepare 
for the release of a fertilizable egg, you know, a viable egg. Mm -hmm. So there are all the things going on in the body. You do the work to see how your body is preparing for that brief window of fertility. And each particular method simply gives you the means to determine when that fertile window begins and when it ends. So how you use that information is still utterly, utterly up to the freedom of the couple. And it's freedom. It's in freedom that allows love. It's in freedom that allows us to build our family. And it's in freedom that God gives us the capacity to make choices. So even the couple who's got very serious medical issues still has the freedom to enter into intercourse or not enter into intercourse. What natural family planning observational methods offer is the ability to know the only window where that intercourse can achieve pregnancy. So it, it really is a distinction most people miss in the conversations when we move between the use of NFP and the, the moral aspects and dimensions of it. Going back to what you were saying about control, I think that's an interesting one because for people who were, I was a kid in the 90s and I think parents in that generation had more of a reputation for trying to control their kids' upbringing. Uh, <laughs> You know, the helicopter parent thing, I think, became more of a commonly mm. widely known stereotype after the 90s, I want to say. Do you think the use of NFP impacts people's parenting styles after they have children? Oh, that's interesting. Andrew, I don't think I've ever been asked that. Yes. <laughs> no, that's a, that's a good one. Hmm. You know, I would, I would first blush, and I'll probably dream about this tonight and send you a revised answer, but... Uh, <laughs> I think some of it is self-selection. You know, when people choose NFP, it really, sadly, only a small percentage of people ever hear about that it even exists. Yeah. And even a minority of Catholics, believe it or not, it's, it's really something that, that for good reasons has been focused in pre-canas and not even all pre-canas do it. And then, you know, it's not able, you're not able to get instruction. So it, some of it is self-selection. So if we start with the pool of Catholics and in that Catholic pool, those who hear about natural family planning, and then within that, those who choose natural family planning, and then within those choose those who stick with it and make it part of their their marital virtue, their marital habits. I think they're you know probably more so than whether NFP affects that. I think that it probably would be begin with that self-selected pool of Catholics who embrace that as part of their marriage, and then who else do you hang out with in order to live? you know, the trials and joys of, of NFP and parenting and family. Because we don't want you to start having, you know, if you choose one of the byproducts of natural family planning is that you start to actually enjoy and look forward to having kids. So it's <laughs> so you, you, you get over this fear, this veil, as Melanie and I did three years into marriage, two and a half years into marriage, where, you know, we had our first daughter. And when she was born, right at that moment, it was, oh, my God, Lord, have mercy. Why did we wait so long? Let's do it again. <laughs> and it wasn't just Damon. It wasn't just Melanie. We looked at each other, and there was just unity in that. So, you know, we have your second daughter, second child. You have a second, third. And all of a sudden, your, your friend pool and your circle of peers start to change because you're looking for people like you. Yeah. So I think that would probably be more of a an impact on the parenting style than, say, the, you know, the broader culture, which is there, the impact is there. But I think as we start to live natural family planning, it starts to affect other areas of our, our life, our family, our peer group. There may be, again, influences there in terms of how we parent. But once you, listen, man, once you, once you start living natural family planning and we, we joke, we say, you know, you're comfortable talking about mucus at the Thanksgiving table. You know, you're not so influenced by the broader culture. You're, you're just, you're used to being countercultural. Yeah. <laughs> you said one thing about uh, lack of widespread awareness of NFP. It makes me want to ask, and I don't think we can record your answer to this, <laughs> but, but I, I still got to ask. After I'm going to ask the question and then I'm going to pause the recording. Can you identify a part of the country which is particularly weak where natural family planning is not widely known, like less so than other parts of the country? All right, I'm going to resume the recording. Okay, so even off-air, Damon was still very diplomatic about it. <laughs> But now this is a positive side of it. Is there any part of the country that you think is close to exemplary in how they spread awareness of NFP? There are a couple of groups, and I think I've assigned them over the years. I've got to find out if they're still true. I know like in Dayton, Ohio, there's just a really vibrant group that I know of, Marquette University with their the Marquette Met, even though they're under a lot of pressure for that. 
a lot of strong NFP groups, Phoenix, Arizona. Oh my goodness. They, they've always been well known in the group out there. Now you're going to make me miss somebody. Newark actually went from New Jersey when I came on in 1992, had already, you know, a 20 some odd year old synthetic thermal method that they developed on their own. Hmm. I know New York as well was, was very strong in, in supporting that. But when I think of like strong NFP areas, it really is about, you know, where some of these groups, you know, like in Omaha, with, with Creighton, you know, where these groups actually started and sort of centers of hub, the Billings method, you know, out in the Midwest. Yeah, there, I think it, it really what happens is with these founders that were real pioneers in the 60s and the 70s. And, you know, they've been known for, you know, a lot of bickering here or there. But these were these were founders, the Billings and Mercedes Wilson, Creighton method. These guys really started centers based on their own vibrancy and by the way, you know, Andrew, we're in a new age now, too, where all these things available online. I mean, when you talk about being originated or, or started in one part of the country, everything's so accessible now that it, including instruction, counseling, chatting, it really is a new day in terms of the geography of NFP. And that's just being diplomatic. That's just reality. Yeah. <laughs> and that's great because our links are going to be helpful for NFP week. So all the more reason to check out our episode note. So yeah, if you are, are you listening to this and you've been uh, at all hesitant about taking the first step in learning more about NFP and maybe finding a class that would be accessible to you either in person or online, then definitely check out our episode notes. And I'm very grateful to uh, Damon Owens for joining us. Damon, thank you very much. Oh, it's a joy. And again, Natural Family Planning has been such a blessing to my marriage and to my life, to my faith. And it's not just because of being some moral or some legalistic reason. It really is a window into understanding just the beauty of creation, the ability to trust the Lord, not just in our eyes and our minds, but in our lives. And if you can do it with sex, family, and money, you can do it with just about anything else. So <laughs> NFP is a great gift. All right. Thanks for coming on. Bless you. And we are back to talk about Indiana Jones with Kara. Hello. Kara, get excited. I am excited. I love these movies. I came here to save you. Oh, yeah? And who's going to come to save you, Junior? I told you. Don't call me Junior. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which we're talking about today, is probably of greater personal significance to both of us than the other movies that we've talked about. Is that true for you too, Kara? Oh, yeah. For the number of times that you would assume, you know, any child of the 90s like I was watched like The Little Mermaid or Aladdin, I've watched this movie the same number of times. It was like part of the DVD collection, not even VHS collection that we had. <laughs> and I loved it. Heck yeah. We are talking about Indiana Jones because it is 40 years since the original Indiana Jones movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark, was released in theaters. But we're not talking about that Jones. We're talking about the other Jones. We're talking about Last Crusade. So what do you say we get into it? Let's do it. So for those of you who don't know, the Indiana Jones movies were all directed by Steven Spielberg and Last Crusade, which is the third Indiana Jones movie was released in 1989, starring Harrison Ford and memorably Sean Connery. I mean, it's memorable that Harrison Ford was in it too. It's very strange watching Sean Connery be a slightly bumbling guy when Harrison Ford is like this action hero, just because I can't get past the fact that he's James Bond. <laughs> so Connery plays Indiana Jones's father, Henry Jones Sr. And these movies are inspired by the James Bond movies. I think you see that in a lot of the globetrotting romancing elements of Indiana Jones. So they kind of wanted to get James Bond in because he was sort of figuratively the father of this character. And now the actor who played James Bond is literally playing the father of this character even though they're not that far apart in age they're like 15 years apart in age or something like that i mean i guess you know basically they transfer his hair from his head to his face <laughs> and it makes him look yeah like uh, sean connery actually appearing bald in this movie uh even though in movies after this came out he was definitely wearing a hairpiece <laughs> Yeah, so the, the father-son angle is really, I think, what drew us to talk about this movie in particular, which is not really the case in the other Indiana Jones movies. Okay, so this movie takes place in 1939, I believe, except for the prologue of the movie, the first 10 or 15 minutes follow young Indiana Jones when he is a teenager growing up in Utah in 1912. And that's where we kick off. You see him coming of age and being introduced to a lot of the hallmarks that he's known for. So in the prologue adventure, he gets the hat, he learns how to use the bullwhip, he gets the scar on his chin, 
the fear of snakes. And most importantly, you see that his desire to rescue antiquities, in this case, the cross of Coronado, that desire to rescue antiquity is not shared by his own father, who's a bookworm. He's a literature guy. There's some overlap because his dad is, I think, revealed later that he's a professor of medieval literature. So, I mean, he also clearly has this interest in the past. And so you can see there's like a through line, but there's also a divergence in their interests. That's a source of frustration for both of them that neatly embodies the difficulty in father-son relationships a Mm -hmm. lot of the time. Like we're so similar, except when we differ, it's intensely frustrating. You know, these guys are both academics. They both are concerned with the past, but one of them is just a bookworm and Indy likes going out in the field and getting his hands dirty. The difficulty, especially early on, is why Indiana Jones decides to model himself after this one random guy who antagonized him for 20 minutes rather than the man who raised him. It was a nice little nod, though, just the hat and in general, that opening scene, just from like a movie making perspective, did such a nice job of kind of laying the field of like who Indiana Jones is. So we get the prologue and then we jump to the current day 1939. We meet up back in the classroom. This bugs me as, a, as someone who's inclined to like philosophy. He says archaeology is about fact, not truth. And he even says like if it's truth you're after, you know, the philosophy class is right down the hall. I, I also laughed at that. <laughs> But I think it actually sets up an interesting theme in the movie for a man who has encountered a number of strange phenomena related to religious artifacts. He has seemingly dedication to atheism, agnosticism, something is just like really baffling to me. Yeah, we'll get into that later. But yeah, he claims to be concerned with like kind of mundane facts, not truth. And X never marks the spot. And that little monologue that brief monologue is going to get brought up again later in the movie in a couple of ways so he's lecturing the class he gets recruited by a rich man walter donovan to go after the holy grail which is the centerpiece of the plot of the movie the big artifact that they're chasing and there's like a huge exposition dump when you first meet the rich guy who recruits them they read some literature about the history of the grail or the legend of the grail they're not really sure if it's history or legend and this is where we enter into some of the overlap with actual catholic theology and sacramental theology particularly because the holy grail is purported to have some kind of supernatural power which may or may not intersect with what we believe about the sacraments they quote from jesus talking about the spring welling up for eternal life which they say happens when you drink out of just the holy grail and then they say that they describe the holy grail as the cup that holds the blood of jesus christ guys like theology could have saved them a lot of trouble because you can find the blood of jesus christ in the parish church around the corner you don't need to go all over the world <laughs> I don't know if the writers were even like theologically informed enough to know that they were doing this with this character. I mean, spoiler alert, this ends up being the main evil guy and he's working with the Nazis in order to find the Holy Grail. And he's obsessed with the idea that the Grail literally gives you eternal life. On Earth. When you drink from it on Earth, that you will, yes, our souls are literally also (laughs) immortal, but he will physically be able to live forever. It's interesting to me that it's making a similar error as the early Jews thought that the second coming of the Messiah would be an earthly kingdom. And Jesus is constantly using this like cup language to describe the afterlife or, you know, the kingdom, his kingdom, which is not here on earth, but in heaven. So it's kind of an interesting parallel that the guy who is the one who is thirsting after this, literally, is so wrong about the essence of what it truly is. Now, in this case, it does provide true physical eternal life too, at least in the you know the context of the movie. But from like a theological perspective, it was kind of interesting that he's making the same kind of error that you see those who don't believe in Jesus make. Yeah, for all you nerds out there, he's imminentizing the eschaton. Uh, he's... <laughs> I love coming. I love coming to the podcast with you. Was that bad? Was that too much? No, it's great. <laughs> I have no idea what 
you what it means. <laughs> Don't assume that everything you want out of eternal life is going to happen in this life. Mm. Jesus is going to bring about the kingdom, but don't assume that it's going to happen here right now. It's going to happen in the fullness of time. But this guy's trying to make it happen because he's a rich man. He's gotten everything he wants and he thinks he can just basically buy his way into this by working with the Nazis. I also think it's interesting that this is a real movement today too. Like there are a lot of like super wealthy Silicon Valley guys who are obsessed with the idea of extending lifetimes and becoming sort of bionic men and all of these things. Yeah, maybe the moon is to Elon Musk what the Holy Grail is to Walter Donovan in this movie. <laughs> maybe that's why the, the rich people are doing a space race right now. <laughs> Indiana Jones gets the pitch. He talks to his academic buddy, Marcus, and he asks Marcus, and they, they're sticking with the kind of Christian trappings here. And they, he asks Marcus, do you believe? Wait, wait, you missed. You missed oh, did I miss they something? En they entice him into it by saying that his father's been taken. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, I missed that part. The whole reason the father's in the movie is because the father is the subject expert on this. He tried to find it and has disappeared. So that's Indy's motivation for actually getting into it. Thank you. Major plot point. <laughs> My problem is I'm thinking too much about imminentizing the eschaton, and I'm not thinking about the movie we're supposed to be talking about. <laughs> that's what I'm here for. <laughs> So he goes back and he talks to Marcus and he asks Marcus, do you believe? And I think what he means in the moment is, do you believe we could actually find the Holy Grail? But I think the sort of double entendre there is belief in the sense of believing in the divine, believing in Jesus Christ. And Marcus sort of gives them like a half an answer because they can't come out and say Jesus Christ is God. Like it's still a secular movie. You're not going to be converted after watching this movie, which is fine. And Marcus gives them this half answer like the search for the cup of Christ is a search for the divine in all of us. Carol, what? What does that mean? 90% of what Marcus says is ridiculous. And I, I put this in that category. Great character, though. This is why he gets lost in his own museum. Yes. In truth, I think it's hitting on something that is deeply true and something that I mean, I kind of alluded to earlier about the sort of ridiculousness that Indiana Jones would still not be a person of faith is just, I mean, even even his father, it's unclear what his level of actual faith in Jesus is. But they also sort of show you in that prologue that the the Holy Grail is his true like life's work. Yeah. The Holy Grail is his Holy Grail. It is everything he's dedicated all of his time to. Later in the movie, Indiana basically says that to him, like you cared more about your books and more about the Holy Grail than you did about me and about yeah. our our relationship and sort of insinuating that he cared more about it than even his wife and so and, and there's a lot of things in this movie that sort of point to the idea of what are you obsessed with are you putting your care in the right places and I think it's interesting that Marcus points out that like the search for something that is essential to the Christian faith is by definition, searching for something more, even though the characters themselves seem to be unaware of the fact that that is what they're looking for. And even Marcus maybe is not entirely aware of what he's saying in that moment. Yeah, that's a good point. So yeah, I guess Indy has spent his whole life thinking that this whole Holy Grail quest has been like a really niche interest, like in kind of a waste of time, like an over-specialization. And Marcus says, well, it's not just a niche thing because it has to do with divine concerns. Like it's a search for the divine in all of us. So, okay, I guess in that sense, he sort of helps in DC that this is more than just an idle obsession that his dad has and it has like real universal import that's a good point or at least it should i'm going to not give them too much credit in saying that do the writers think that do they even know what they're saying or does it just sound nice i don't know but i think yeah. that like they kind of hit on a truth without necessarily being cognizant of it part number one where indy's archaeology speech is sort of refuted is the x marks the spot thing where they, they have to find the three roman numerals in the church library library church and the x for 10 literally marks where they're supposed to go to find the clue to get them closer to finding the grail so in that case x literally marks the spot and then later on that that archaeology speech is also refuted a little bit by his father so he's met up with his father he's rescued him from the nazis they're literally at a crossroads and you know, Jones started the movie saying archaeology is about facts, not truth. And then his dad says, what we're doing now, this is not archaeology. This is a race against evil, meaning the Nazis, but also that the Holy Grail 
is not some purely academic interest. This is real good versus evil stuff. So it's not just about facts. Uh, we might even encounter some truth along the way. I didn't realize that connection until I had to watch it to prepare for this, that this is not archaeology. It was meant to be a response to that earlier speech in the classroom. Yeah, which again, I think is interesting. Should we get into it now? Oh yeah, okay, let's do it. Yeah, I think we should. You know, in the first movie, they open the Ark of the Covenant at the end and people like disintegrate. There's like light and whatever happens. And then at the end of this movie, the guy drinks the wrong cup and he also disintegrates. So I, I can't wrap my brain around like how somebody like Indiana Jones has all of these experiences and walks out of there just, huh, about the afterlife or <laughs> faith. It just seems like it, none of it faces him. Yeah, he starts out as like an early 20th century academic who's steeped in enlightenment skepticism, doesn't believe in all the fairy tales and all that, and sees this literally and it totally defies empirical explanation. And yet after, he seems to just still be an enlightenment academic with the same skepticism. Yeah, it just makes no sense to me. <laughs> so we were, we were talking about this before the recording. Carrie, you talking about this made me realize that there's actually some precedent for this sort of thing. Jesus talks about that sort of obstinacy even in the face of miracles. At the end of Luke 16, he's talking about the, uh, the parable of Lazarus mm, and the rich mm -hmm. man. So the rich man is in the afterlife and it's not, he's not, it's not going well. And he says, okay, Abraham, you know, let me go to my father's house. I have brothers. Let me, let me let them know that this is all for real. And Abraham in the parable says, they have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to him. Uh, and the rich man says, oh no, father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And then Abraham said, so Jesus is in this parable saying this, if they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone should rise from the dead. So skepticism at miracles is kind of a thing, yes, yeah. and it's part of our revelation too. So Jesus wants us to be prepared. All these skeptics out here who think that if they just saw a miracle, then they would believe. Yeah. It's not necessarily even true. It may be true in particular circumstances, but not automatically. Yeah. We also know that faith is a gift and the fact that, you know, you have to be receptive to that gift. And somebody like Indiana Jones having these experiences, if his heart was receptive, would be open to it. But the fact that he isn't has to give you some indication of his internal disposition. Yeah, he's not exactly pursuing a life of charity to begin with. <laughs> His personal life doesn't exactly reflect men, women, and the mystery of love. And to be clear, we're not endorsing that. That's kind of the James Bond side of Indiana Jones. I think it's worth mentioning that this movie is like 90% chase scene. Very entertaining. Oh. Love every minute of it, but it's mostly a big chase scene, so... <laughs> One moment in one of the chase scenes that I do want to talk about before we get to the end, the airplane dogfight scene. Oh, mm. So Indy's flying the plane like a biplane and his dad is on the tail gun and he accidentally shoots the tail out and then he, he says to Indy, like, son, I'm sorry, they got us. Uh, the Nazis did. And that moment had huge dad energy. It's like if he had backed over the dog in the driveway... <laughs> And then he, he goes to his son and says, well, the dog ran away. That feels very dad to me. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a really morbid analogy. I did want to hit on the Zeppelin scene is also one of the, I think, like more meaningful scenes with mm -hmm. the two of them. Well, you've already seen them kind of bickering, but that was like the sort of moment of exposition about their relationship and the fact that Indiana Jones is sort of trying to tell his father that you never were there for me and like never reached out for a relationship. And his dad basically is like, okay, we're here. What do you want to talk about? And he's like, I don't, I don't have something to say. And he's like, well, then why did you bring it up? It was, I thought it was like a really nice little insight into their relationship, but also just setting up the fact that Indiana clearly craves a relationship with his father in a way that his father just doesn't really understand. And at this point, I think it's still really obvious that the father is more obsessed with the Holy Grail and finding the Grail than he is with the relationship with his son. But I think that that scene in particular makes the ending more poignant. Yeah. I agree, because his dad keeps deferring the meaningfulness of the relationship. In that conversation, they talk about the three challenges, and then we go through the three challenges at the end of the movie when the bad guy has shot Sean Connery in the stomach and he's slowly dying. And so the only way Indiana Jones can save him is to obtain the Holy Grail after going through the three challenges. Okay, 
I got to talk about the three challenges because I get that this movie is not going for a deep treatment of Christianity, but I'm sorry, Kara, I have to do this. I love this movie, but please hit it. Go for it. (laughs) All right. So there's three challenges, right? The first one is called the breath of God. Great. The second one's called the word of God. Okay. Two out of three. We've got two challenges. Each one is named after one of the persons of the Trinity. Awesome. The Holy Spirit called the breath of God. Jesus, the word of God. Is the third challenge going to have anything to do with God the Father? Let's see. No, it's called the path of God. What is that? (laughs) This is supposedly designed by crusaders who would have understood something about the Trinity. And they just call the third thing the path of God and not returning to the Father or something like that. Uh, The merciful Father, like in the parable of the prodigal son. Nope, sorry, path of God. I can imagine that you would empathize with being like, what? What could I call it that is just as catchy <laughs> and like just really coming up short on on the like catchy third word problem? That's my interpretation of this is they couldn't think of something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. If I were writing this, I probably would have done the same thing where I put in Path of God and say, OK, well, that's a placeholder. I'll come back to it later and I'll think of a cool <laughs> name for that. And then I just spend like a couple of weeks trying to think of something and I can't think of anything. Uh, but if you think of a... If you think of a cool name for the third challenge that has to do with God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, email us, defensivemarriage at usccb.org. Let me know. <laughs> we can rewrite this movie. Okay, so Breath of God, the first challenge. This is actually, I thought this was pretty cool. This is one of the theologically deeper parts of the movie, I thought, because in the actual plot, what happens is he's walking forward through this creepy hallway and he's reading the challenge. Um, And it says the kind of helping hint on this challenge is the penitent man shall pass. So he's trying to figure out, well, okay, what does that mean? Then he sees the air in the cavern starting to move around like the cobwebs. And he sees something's going to happen that he knows beheaded the previous guy that tried to walk through here. And he's thinking, okay, penitent man kneels before God. Okay, I got to kneel. And then I guess tuck and roll. I don't think the penitent man tucks and rolls before God, but. I did also, I was like, this is a little misleading. Where was it? Where was any hint about the second part? (laughs) But it was neat because the, the breath of God literally here moves him to kneel in the same way that the Holy Spirit moves us to repentance. I thought that was actually mm-hmm. kind of neat. And the, the crusaders who designed this booby trap had some sort of catechetical purpose in mind. I agree. We get to the second one and the name of it is cool word of God. So here Indiana Jones has to discover the word of God. Basically he has to do some on the spot theology and he thinks, okay, name of God. And he comes up with Jehovah. And then he, those are the, the letters on the floor that he walks on that are safe to step on that won't cave in so he won't fall to his death and he can move on but the word of god is not jehovah that's the second person of the trinity who's the word of god the name of god is jesus <laughs> or yeshua i thought it was going to be yeshua right I was like yeah that's what yeah. I, I was i had forgotten what it what the answer was because i was like well it has to be jesus i was like well maybe it's yeshua that makes sense i wonder if maybe there were two options if he had stepped on instead of J-E-H or I-E-H. If he had stepped on I-E-S, would he have also been safe? Are there like two safe paths through the puzzle? But yeah, missed opportunity on the Crusaders part there. The name of God is Jesus. Jehovah, Yahweh, is a way of referring to God that comes up in the Old Testament, but it's not a personal name the way Jesus is when God enters into human history. And Yahweh applies to all three persons of the Trinity in their single divine nature. It doesn't apply to any one person of the Trinity, to the exclusion of the other two. <laughs> Again, which Crusaders would have known. Also, if you wanted to say that, like, oh, maybe there's some other tradition here. Like, he's going for the cup of Christ. Like, we are obviously working through the Christian tradition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially with the third one, Path of God. Not only is the name of it dumb, but the puzzle, which on screen looks really cool, but it's just a leap of faith. Like, I didn't know the Crusaders read Soren Kierkegaard, <laughs> like, had to have this blind trust in God. It's not quite what we as Catholics mean by faith, but the leap of faith works well in movies, so you get the leap of faith and the invisible walkway. Okay, so question there. Yeah. This has always been unclear to me, and it continued to be unclear to me in watching this. Is it truly invisible, or is it that it blends in so perfectly with the rock that it looks like it's from the further away 
Like when he's walking across it, it looks like it's the rock. But then when he goes to like scatter the the stuff on it, it makes it look like it's actually invisible. Yeah, I think it's supposed to be just camouflaged really well. But you see it camouflaged from multiple points of view. Like you said, like when he scatters the sand on it, you see it from a different angle and it's still somehow camouflaged yeah, it's... with the rock behind it. <laughs> even even childhood me was always like, this seems fishy. <laughs> in in Spielberg's defense, it looks really cool. It does look really cool. So yeah, those are the three challenges. And And one thing that's nice about it, so even though he's not sharing the same space as his father, Indiana Jones is still relating to his father through these challenges because he first learned about the challenges from his father. As he's going through them, he's reading from the diary that his father kept. And we're also cutting back and forth between him and his dying father, who's thinking his way through it, even though he's in the process of dying. He's sort of working remotely with his son to get through these challenges. And at the end, like, it's just, you must believe, uh, which is not something Indy's inclined to do and doesn't really, you know, he's, he doesn't exactly convert after that, but he believes that that challenge is going to bring him safely to the other side. So in that sense, he exhibits a kind of trust. And more importantly, he trusts what his father has done to study this stuff. And he sort of enters into his father's passion, which that, that's kind of neat. I liked that. I thought that was a nice connection i mean especially because of the there's so much like discord between the two of them that the, there's been this theme throughout the movie that he is motivated by saving his father but it's sort of this like very tangible step towards them being more reconciled to one another so we get to the final scene the actual room where the still living knight of the first crusade is still there guarding the holy grail along with a few dozen false holy grails the bad guy makes it through with Elsa, the female archaeologist, who's a Nazi sympathizer too. But at this point, she's kind of done with working with the bad guy. So she tells him to drink out of this one cup because he's not an expert. He doesn't know. He just trusts whatever she tells him. She tells him the wrong one, one of the ornate looking cups. He drinks from it and he chose poorly. And when I saw this scene when I was a kid, I was pretty scared when he starts aging rapidly. Like, that was... It's wild. And then it's Indy's turn, and he picks the right one, and it's the simplest one, which, historically, probably accurate. I don't think we should take that as, like, a liturgical indication. Liturgy has a different purpose than historical accuracy. I feel like it makes for a good movie, this thematic thing that, like, he's this humble carpenter. One other thing about the, the simple carpenter's chalice that he does pick, it still does have kind of a gold inlay mm. there. Maybe that's supposed to be indicative of Christ's hidden divine nature. Mm. I'm still into the symbolism of it. The idea that they chose, like, the most ridiculous one because that's what the world would want and yeah christ would not be as concerned with those things i do think it's interesting as a character choice that the man is obsessed with finding the holy grail but like apparently has never read up on what he thinks it would look like so i think he's obsessed with the end but he doesn't really mm. care about the means to it right that's true that's true. He's going to pay other people to figure out the, the steps in between. He's just going to be there at the end to collect. Yeah, it's like, I'm paying for it, so I get the benefits, but I'm going to hire the people who are actually obsessed with this thing. And if that means, you know, working with the Nazis, fine. I'll still be around once their empire has fallen. <laughs> the villain sort of serves as a foil for Indy. The villain is not interested in the details of the Grail quest, really. Like, he gives the exposition, but he basically lets Ilsa do all the work uh, in studying this stuff and piecing together the clues. Indy also doesn't care about the details of the Grail quest until his relationship with his father causes him to enter into those details and figure out the three challenges. Mm -hmm. So Indy is actually willing to get into it, uh, whereas Donovan, the bad guy, is not, because Indy is motivated by the love for his father and brings back the chalice to heal his father. And at this point, Harrison Ford asks Sean Connery, what did you find drinking from the Holy Grail. And Sean Connery says just one word. He says illumination. All right, Kara, what does illumination mean? I mean, I think it's purposefully ambiguous, but I think it could be taken in two ways. The first I actually think is the more important one, and it's the one that clearly ties into the family plot here. And so when they bring back the cup and, you know, it heals his father from the gun wound and then Elsa decides that she's going to try and remove the cup, despite the fact that the crusader who was guarding it told them not to cross the seal. She does anyway. <laughs> the entire thing starts to melt down. 
And it's interesting because so Elsa dies because she is so obsessed with trying to reach the cup and Indy is holding onto her and she's like, I can reach it. I can reach it. And he's like, you are slipping. You're going to die. And then Indiana does the same where his father is holding on to him and he is trying to reach the cup. And his father is the one who says to him, Indiana, let it go, which he's the one who was obsessed with the grail. And he is faced with the choice of letting his son try to get it by reaching it. The thing he has quested his entire life for, but he could potentially lose his son if he lets him try to continue to reach for it. And it's a very poignant way of saying, I choose you over the grail, which is in direct contrast to earlier when he has rejected the relationship in order to you know, get down to the nitty gritty of searching for the grail. And so that was the more important, obvious part to me of the illumination about what's actually important is his relationship with his son and not the quest for the grail. Now, on the one hand, he has sort of achieved the quest for the grail. He found it. The like intellectual burning has been satisfied. But I think on the other hand, I think that he may actually be a character who has faith and this like sort of subtle underlying search for the grail having some sort of theological significance and the fact that the powers of it actually saved him. You know, this is water in the chalice, but like clearly a stand in for the blood of Christ literally saving his life um, could also be seen as like illumination as to theological realities. No, I think that's a, that's a good point. Uh, And not one that like occurred to me, but I think it's there. Like, He's gone on this quest his whole life. He finally gets to drink out of the Holy Grail. And what he finds in that moment is how important his son is to him. Mm -hmm. How he is called to love his son. Which is why shortly after that, he's able to say, like, Indiana, let it go. My husband pointed out when we were watching it, too, he's like, you know, after he drinks the cup, the first thing he does is look at Indiana, not at the Holy Grail. It's like he has the two things that are sort of like the most important. And he even just visually like chooses his son by looking to him first and not at the artifact. Yeah, because he he understands that the Grail is not God, that he's experienced God through it, but that God also calls him to love his son. I think that's that's a great distinction between a, a sacrament, which this is not, and a sacramental, which in the world of the movie it might be. Mm. Yeah, so I think I think that works. I'll take that, Henry Jones Sr. <laughs> now I'm dying to know if they actually had theological consultants on this movie, or if this was all like gut feel. <laughs> I think it was probably just gut feeling. But hey, we were able to salvage uh, some theological significance from it. And I hope we have convinced you at home that this, I don't think this is a secret Catholic movie. I don't think I can claim that. <laughs> Quiet Place is, Toy Story 3 is, but not this. It's like an accidental Catholic movie, maybe? (laughs) Accidental Catholic movie, yeah. If you want to interpret it that way, definitely. We'll take it. (laughs) So that wraps us up. Thanks for joining us for Indiana Jones, and we will see you later. Thanks for joining us, Kara. Thanks for having me. And what did you find, Junior? Junior? Dad? Please, what does it always mean? This this Junior? That's his name. Henry Jones Junior. I like Indiana. We're named the dog, Indiana. The dog? <laughs> you are named after the dog? <laughs> got a lot of fond memories of that dog. Please share this podcast with your friends and leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe wherever you find your podcast. Bye now, and God love you.